Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Carlos Baker. Carlos is a songwriter, musician, author, father of four, expat, and survivor of childhood cancer and adult depression. Having spent his entire life saturated both in music and writing, his band, CK Baker Band, has released their sophomore album, Find Your Way. Carlos's gift as a songwriter comes alive as an alternative rock sound, a compelling combination of styles from classic rock, rhythm and blues, folk, and soul. Carlos is also the author of Songs for Ivy, a love story of hope and resilience. Inspired by his personal tragedies of childhood cancer and having his leg amputated above the knee at the age of 14, this fictional novel is a touching and enlightening perspective on the complexity of the human soul and experience. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Carlos, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Carlos. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. Well, thank you so much. I'm gonna I gotta go check out your website now. Now I'm curious. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. After the show, for sure. Well, first, I would just love you to tell your story. I know you've been through a lot. Um, how were you diagnosed? And just give me a little bit about your background. Yeah. I don't know if I've been through a lot. I just lived a good life. Um, it's all relative, right? Uh, well, I had this, I had a wonderful childhood, kind of super, like I, what I would imagine people would think of as the perfect childhood growing up on a, on a farm. Uh, my, my father and mother built a little raised ranch on my grandfather's 20 acre gentleman's farm. And I had kind of this, you know, storybook childhood where we, constantly surrounded by family, um, you know, wonderful friends, kind of all that stuff. And I was a happy go lucky boy and, uh, played, you know, played a lot of sports like boys do. And when I was around 12, I, you know, when my parents, when we look back at it, uh, I would had been complaining probably for at least six months about, um, uh, bad circulation in my left foot, I, you know, like pins and needles type thing. And, um, after a bunch of months of me complaining, my finally my pops, uh, we decided to go to a walk-in clinic in East Providence, Rhode Island, where I grew up. 
And, um, you know, it was kind of one of those, yeah, we'll just pop in, you know, it was, it was no big deal. Like maybe there's uh maybe you have some, something going on. So, uh, we went in, it was typical. The doctor said, yeah, it looks a little swollen. We'll take the x-ray and he got that done. And when he came back into the room, even at 12, 12 and a half years old, I recognized the, 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 you know, the energy in the room changed, you know, he came in and you could just feel it. And he, and he said, well, um, there's definitely something going on in there. And I have a colleague in, in, uh, in the big hospital over in Rhode Island, I'm going to send you over there now. And we were like, now, and he's like, now, you know, my, and, and, and I think my father even knew, okay, this is weird. Yeah. Serious. Yeah. Yeah. It was serious. And from there, you know, from there began the, that journey of, of, you know, never, it's what a weird thing to say, never living a normal life again. That makes no sense because they're what is normal, but you know, our lives as, as a family changed just so drastically that day, you know, it's like nothing else mattered from that day, except to me, my parents trying to figure out a way to keep me alive, which um, ultimately it was osteosarcoma and it was quite far along because they, they ultimately found it in both my lungs. And um, so that, that kind of journey of that, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that, you know, the, the surgeries and the chemotherapy and kind of all that stuff and going into remission and, but then finding more cancer in the lungs, and you know, um, in, in retrospect, Haley, to be honest, it's, it's so interesting because it wasn't that bad for me. And I, I'm a, you know, perhaps it's by nature, I'm kind of a, for lack of a better term, a free spirit. So when I think back, I was rather content. I mean, it was, a you know, it's a, it's hard to explain because like, for instance, all my, you know, the, all these people around me that were, we were going through the same cancer, whether it was osteo or there were a lot of leukemia patients. There were a lot of um, Ewing sarcoma patients. So, you know, we were at Dana Farber Cancer Institute and and so many of them were dying around us. You know, they were where I can remember the different names where we got to know them and got to know their families and then they were gone, you know? No, oh, it had to be hard on you. Well, but this is the weird thing is at no point did it dawn on me that I could be, that I could die, which is so illogical, you know? And, and I know years later, I, I use this example because uh, when I was 19, as a freshman in college, I, I had two really best guy friends when I was sick that were just with me every step of the way. So we were 12, 13, 14. And one of them, went, yeah, he, he ultimately now is a, a history teacher. And he, freshman year at UMass, he, he said, hey, I want you to know I wrote a book about you for one of my classes, you know, like a children's book. And I was like, oh, cool, man. You know, I'll check it out. And it, it was really sweet. You know, it was my, the story. And, and then in one of the pages, it was like, um, you know, we all thought he was going to die or something, you know, or everyone knew or something, you know, I can't remember the wording. And I remember being like, dude, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, Carlos, everyone just assumed you were going to die. You were, you were dead man walking, you know? I love that innocence that you had. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I always use that word. So whenever people kind of say, you know, how did you do it? How'd you beat cancer? And I'm like, I think it was like complete naivety slash, you know, stupidity where I just, I, I was like, oh, hmm, they found more cancer in the other one. Okay. When's the surgery? <laughs> you know what I mean? 
So I don't know. It, it's it's uh it's fascinating when I look back. And even you know when you said you went through a lot, even losing the leg, again rather rather logical because I would imagine if we if you and I interviewed a hundred guys that lost their leg to, to something, probably most of them would say, yeah, it was, it was the worst day of my life or blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, because I was sick for two years. So they, they found the cancer, they tried to save my leg. They did all the surgeries in my lungs and then the cancer was in remission, but my leg was no longer a viable. It was, it was no longer working. It, it was a staph infection. Oh. So I was a 13, 14 year old boy that I wanted to just be, you know, I wanted to move on, but this staph infection and this, you know, oozing, disgusting leg was still on my body. And, and then I met some guys that had artificial legs and I was like, oh, I want that. You know, I want to be able to do what they do. Yeah. So the, you know, the day I woke up from my amputation, I, it was like a celebration. So when I tell my story, it just doesn't, it, it, it always sounds like I'm kind of like, almost like bullshitting a little, but th- this is my memory of it. I, I, I don't have many negative, you know, and my mom would probably argue, she'd probably say you had tough days. And it's like, yeah, of course I, but overall, I remember those years as being, you know, I was the center of attention, <laughs> you know, I, I loved the nurses, you know, I was fascinated by the doctors. Um, so you know, a little, a little strange. Uh, my my take on it is a little strange. Of course, as a as a fifty year old guy now with four kids, I also have been able to kind of understand the the pain that it caused my parents. Right. Uh-huh. So now, as an adult, I can look back and be like, oh, that this this is why my father, <laughs> you know, my father never was the same again because he watched his, you know, his boy. Suffer, you know, suffer, and and for so many years, and and like like I realize now is they they couldn't say it, but they also assumed I wasn't going to make it, you know. So right, yeah. So and and my brother, you know, the the way it the way it affects all of our families, right, our, our communities. It, those things when you're when I was a kid, I needless to say, I couldn't have that kind of perspective, but. Now, as an adult, even with my brother, you know, we have baggage, you know, I love him, but I I can recognize so much of that baggage stems from those crazy years where my parents, you know, checked out of, uh, he was three years older than me. So they checked out of a 15 year old boy's life and they didn't check back in maybe ever, (laughs) or if they did, it was, he was off to college. And so right, I think those are the things and and as you can tell, I've done a lot of thinking of, of all, you know, I'm one of those guys that for a lot of reasons, I have to do a lot of that introspection and do all that work to, to make sense of the way my brain does or doesn't work with respect to uh, depression and my experiences with all that stuff. So I've had to dig in, you know, it, it wasn't until my mid thirties that, that I, I really did take the time to dig in to say, oh, you know, going th- those those years were they they changed things not just for me but but for my you know my community and yeah and I'm sure it was traumatic too even though you didn't realize it so much you probably stored a lot of those emotions. I just have one quick question. Um, so how long was your treatment? How long did you have chemotherapy? 
Yep. So for osteosarcoma back then, and for, from what I understand, sadly, it hasn't changed at all. It's the same exact um, program. It was a 12-month program of kind of like four, I think four drugs, um, cisplatinum, adriamycin, methotrexate. I remember some of the some of the drugs. And it was supposed to be 12 months, three weeks on, one week off. Yeah, it's tough. So, so, you know, basically, uh, and, and a lot of times the one week off the count, your counts would go down and you'd be rushed back in. I don't know if, if you went through that. Stuff. I had that issue too. Yeah. And I did have cisplatinum. That was a harsh one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I remember that one too. I think it was red. I, I feel like I remember certain, you know, memories, but it was supposed to be, um, so, so they did the surgery uh, to try and save my leg immediately started doing the chemotherapy. Then they found four small tumors in my left lung, did that surgery, then immediately went back to the chemotherapy. And then five months later, let's see, ultimately nine months after I started, they found a grapefruit-sized tumor in my right lung, oh. which, which in retrospect, again, I didn't know this, but at that point it meant basically go make some memories because the the chemotherapy that works you know whatever 50% of the time isn't working there's really no other option so my parents made the decision and this is this story always gets people love this story i happen not to be um a religious person i'm i'm an atheist but i, I like to tell the story because it fascinates people so they found a grapefruit sized tumor in my right lung my parents decided they wanted the lung removed or or the lobes, whatever lobes were affected to be removed. And we would go try and find um, some alternate chemotherapy, right? And the night before the surgery, and this is all, this is, this is my recount of it. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt because, you know, we our, our, our histories, our stories change as we get older. But uh, the night before the surgery, my mom had heard about a, a, a healer that was coming through Seekonk, Massachusetts, which is in a town near us. So we showed up at this village, a very, uh, very white, middle upper class. Seekonk is very white, middle upper class. And we walk into this church and there's a, a, an American woman, Ungringa, so, so like a, clearly an American woman singing like a nun, singing Spanish music on an acoustic guitar in front of the so, so that in itself was kind of like, well, that's bizarre because my mom speaks Spanish and I speak Spanish. So we sit down and, you know, there's a handful of people there. And um, this guy, again, this is how I remember it. He came, he stood up and said, um, God has sent to me so-and-so and to be healed of this. God has sent me someone to be healed of this. And he said, God has sent me someone to be healed of cancer in their lungs. And I literally like a you know, 12 year old kid, I raised my hand. I was like, I think that's me Aww. again, total naive, you know, totally naive. And he brought me up to the front of the church and there was about 10 people with their hands on my body chanting in tongue, which is very intimidating for a 12 year old because it's weird. I bet. It sounds like gobbledygook, you know, so it's kind of like what is happening. And, um, and I don't, I don't think I took it too seriously. And, and I, I can remember when we, I was always a, a silly boy and I was on crutches at that point. And I remember we walked out of the, out of the church. I was with my mom and dad and I threw both my crutches to either side of me. And I was like, I'm healed. And, you know, being silly walking. And my dad's like, you can't do that joke. That's blasphemous. You know? And I was like, oh, sorry. 
but went in the surgery the next day, you know, major, major thoracotomy is a huge, you know, surgery that just takes so much out of the body because they open up the crack, the lung, uh, crack the ribs. And, uh, I woke up to them saying there was no tumor. It was gone, which, you know, science can't explain why those things happen. Right. The doctors were like, so when they opened you up, there was nothing there. There was nothing there. So they went from either removing my lung or one or two lobes. However, that works, I, you know, to saying, yeah, it wasn't there. We, you know, we don't know why that happens, but what we're going to do now is we're going to stop all treatment and we're going to let, because at that point I was just nothing, you know, I weighed, I, I had, I was just skin and bones, you know? And, uh, yeah. So that was nine months into a 12 month treatment. The doctors at Dana Farber said, we're going to stop and see what your body does. And that was my, that was the end of my story with cancer. That is so incredible. And has it made you more faithful or no? No, I mean, I, that that's the thing is I, I mean, I'm an atheist. So, I mean, my mom is quite spiritual and, and I guess she is, you know, she believes I don't know what to make of it, to to be honest with you. I I that's one thing I haven't dwelled on too much. I get the sense, I get the sense that we have maybe we have the ability to, you know, to do things that we don't understand. I don't know why it happened, Haley. Who who knows? I, I just know I I can remember waking up and my dad was like, Did you hear the bad news? And I was like, you know, my dad with his bad humor. And I'm like, huh? And he's like, there was nothing there. And I'm like, okay, well, that must be good news, you know? <laughs> so, um, and you were how old at that point? So, uh, I would have been, that was in, um, let's see. I was, I had just turned 13. Yeah. Just turned 13. So amazing. Yeah. And with your leg, did that happen because of an infection or was it the chemo or what exactly happened? The amputation? Yes. So, Back in those days, uh, that would have been 1987, December of 87, when this guy, Dr. Mark Gebhardt, did this um, surgery where he removed most of my femur bone and all of my knee and, and tried to kind of rebuild it with a donor femur bone and, and an artificial knee. And from the, from day one, it ended up with a staph infection. And from what I understand, if you have a staph infection in an artificial joint, it's very difficult because you don't have blood circulation. So it's very difficult to um, get rid of that. So, so I had that leg for two years where it was just not healing, not, you know, it was just oozing and, um, you know, it wasn't, it was kill, it was killing me, you know, it was literally killing me. So that was ultimately the decision of to, uh, I think I had two options to amputate or to put like those spaces and just make it a you know, like a glass leg that doesn't bend. And I was like, no, God, I want to, you know, I, like I said, I met this big 16 year old boy that was, you know, full of life that had lost his leg. And I was like, no, I want to be like that other guy that can, you know, that can be normal and run around and not run around because he was his, uh, I, I have 19 centimeters of, of, um, femur bone. So from a, uh, from a physics standpoint, it's limited lever, right? Right which, which has, I'm not complaining. I'm just making a statement that I, I can't run. Like you see the people do in, uh, in the Olympics and stuff, but Got it. I never, I was never too worried about not running. I just was happy to be alive. I think at that point. 
Exactly. And then, so you went to school and was that hard for you? I mean, were people nice to you? I know that age, yeah, boys could be mean. Oh, I was so, no, I've always been so lucky. I, you know, I've always been a social guy. So that was never an issue. And, and I think it was the opposite. People were so supportive. I mean, the reality is, Haley, here's the reality is I just didn't talk about it. And I just pretended I was a normal guy. So literally, I don't think I would even, you know, until I was in college when I was more, you know, had to, had to have those conversations because in, in the world that I lived in, in high school, everyone knew me, everyone knew that I had lost my leg, but I just was like, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I want to be a normal guy, you know, which you know, is good. You know, it is what it is, right? I I look back and say, well, it was it, it was bizarre, and and you know, I as a result of that, I didn't push myself to do as much as I could have. Meaning, I you know, perhaps I could have tried to to be more involved in sports and stuff like that, but I just didn't want to. You know, I just pretended I was a. You know, I basically pretended like it didn't happen. I didn't, not to the point where it was unhealthy, just. You know, I, I just so, you know, I think I was so in, in my own way, so content to be able to do all that I could do, you know, I mean, and, and I'm, I probably, I'm probably glossing over the, the loss of not being able to compete because, you know, boys love sports and boys love to compete in high school. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably not so honest with myself as to how much that affected me, but my memory of it is that, you know, I, I supported my buddies that played sports and I couldn't play. And so I talked to girls while I was in the <laughs> stands. I don't know. Right. I mean, you're definitely a glass half full person. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Always have been, I think. And that's what my mom says is even, you know, that nature versus nurture is I was kind of always in my own little world. And, and to this day, I, you know, I'm, I don't know that I'm a, I don't know that I fit into the norm. Right. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit, I don't know, is is that an art, artist-y thing, a creative thing? I'm not sure, but. It it's, has served you well, for sure. It has served me well. That's right. Yep. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarlfoldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I know you've spoken about underlying shame that you had. 
I'd love you to just to go a little into that and and how it manifested for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the with the specifically with the emotion of shame, it. So I'm, you know, got married, had the kids, and all that stuff, and and kind of before that, I was that free spirit. So before I got married and settled down, even as a young adult, I I wasn't taking, I I hadn't taken life too seriously, for better or for worse. I, you know, I didn't I didn't take a real career job. I was working at a Gold's Gym or working at it. You know, not to say that's not a real career job, but I was I just wasn't ready to step into that world of adulthood right and and i i use the word serious because at some point we all have to become a little more serious that that's just how life is right you're a kid you're in college you're you're you know you can kind of enjoy the moment but at some point you got to step up and so then my wife and i we got i uh, the woman i'm still with to this day who i adore we decided to get married and have we had a bunch of kids three kids in three years and I went to work for a family business and, you know, bought a house and did all the things that you're supposed to do. Right. And it for a minute, it was, it was really great. I really loved it. I loved, I loved my babies uh, and, and even working uh, for the family business was a challenge that it was exciting. But at some point, uh, I guess I was in my early thirties, my, I just became, I was no longer able to handle that, that the pressures that come with that. And, and I, I, I say, I just wasn't able to be serious. I really wasn't able to take that step. I was still, I still missed being a, a goofy free spirit and it manifested in, in horrifying depression where I basically crashed to, you know, not be able to function anymore, you know, mm. which for me was anxiety, panic attacks. And then ultimately the fear of panic attacks. So, you know, depression is always weird when, to me, I, I always struggle with like, I have depression. Well, do you have anxiety or do you have depression? Well, anxiety is depression. You know, I always get confused with that. Right. Because they coincide, right? Yeah, they coincide. So for me is I had panic attacks and then I had this just horrifying fear that just, I, I wasn't able to function because all I was doing was, was thinking about you know, keeping that monster of that panic attack away, you know, keep him, keeping him at bay. And it, yeah, it got to the point where I wasn't telling anyone about it, but I also was no longer able to function and communicate. And, and this, this rage kind of, I, st I started being angry at everybody, you know, my mom, my brother, my everybody, except my wife and my kids. That was like my solace somehow, uh -huh. but I turned on everyone else. It was very strange. And um, ultimately, you know, thankfully, because it, it it did come to a head where where at some point I just didn't want to, I, I didn't want to do that anymore. I, I I actually I worked with one of my best friends for my family business. We started at the same day when we were in our late twenties. We started working for my father at the same day, and he was my best friend all my childhood, and he was my best friend for the five years that we worked for my father. And then all of a sudden, I hated everybody in this world that I was in. Hated. That was my. That was the emotion that I felt for them. So one day, I ran into him because I wouldn't see him anymore. He, he, I wouldn't give him my time. And he, we ran into each other, and he, we tried to have a normal. He tried to have a normal conversation with me, and I, I said, "How you doing, man?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I still love 
my work. And, you know, it's just working at, at, at the business. It's, it's the greatest place in the world to work, but I'm thinking about, you know, maybe changing careers. So then after that, that was like maybe a five minute conversation, but I remember being like, okay, my best friend I grew up with just told me that the place I used to work is the greatest place to work. And all the people there are great. And I remember that, but now I hate them all. Like this must be me. Like I have to be broken. It's, so it was kind of one of those, you know, um, light bulb moments. Light bulb. I was like, unless unless the whole world is against me, there's no way. So um, that day, I, I called my. I can very very uh, you know clearly remember. I called my mom and I said, I'm I'm going to go to this place in Providence. Uh, it's a mental health center. I said I'm going to go there right now. I'm just going to drive in and and because I need help, you know. So. Uh, she made some calls and a, a psychiatrist saw me and, and he was, you know, it's just what you'd expect. I told him all, all the stuff and he's like, yeah. Uh, so how long have you been doing this? And I'm like, I guess it's been a couple of years. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to give you this pill. And you're going to feel better tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, what, what are you talking about? You know, which is, you know, Xanax probably in retrospect. And then, um, so the Xanax immediately took that edge off that, that insanity, you know, and I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. This is how my mind works normally. You know, it slows down, right? And then got on, uh, ultimately got on the right meds, which for me to this day, 15 years later is um, Effexor. So the same same drug I've been on forever. And and I quickly kind of found, you know, some, some middle ground and I, I was at least neutral, right? Able to function again. But you had counseling also, not just the pill, or it was pretty much a quick fix? Nah, I had a little counseling, but the quick fix was my wife turned to me and said, because I could no longer work, go back to it. And, this, and I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to the, the shame, but I could no longer go back to work for the family because it was there, there was there was so much hurt there for me and, and for family members that I had dealt with. And it, it was just, it wasn't an option. So my wife literally was like, what do you think about moving to Germany? I'm like, okay. Because I mean, my wife was born and raised in, in Northern Germany. And within a, a few months, we packed up our stuff in a container. We packed up our three, then three kids who were seven, six, and four. And we moved to the little village in, uh, in Northern Germany with no plan, no money, moved into the, into the apartment where her mother, where she grew up into the house that she grew up in. And kind of, you know, had to start over. And it was pretty brave. Well, yeah, it was brave. I think it was very brave for my wife. And, and, uh, for me, it was, it was the, maybe the only way that I could, you know, I needed to get away from that, that place that I was in physically, emotionally, all of it. And, um, but, uh, the thing with depression that I experienced is once you get out of it so so i was able to to pull myself out of that hole right find the light you know walk towards the light but then there's that okay what just happened mm -hmm. right so so now i'm like well i feel i feel like my mind is working and i can think again you know I, my, my brain is working the way it's supposed to but what just happened to me how, how did i just completely fail you know life in every possible way in in a very big way because i i tell myself that i you know 
I'm just a regular guy like all of us, but in my mind, I'm like a, you know, rock star and a, you know, maybe we, maybe we all do that. I'm not sure, but to me, I failed in grand, you know, grand fashion as if the whole world was, was worrying and thinking about my failure. Mm. The reality as I, as I got older and again, perspective is nobody cares <laughs> all the, I'm a good person. And, and people like me. So all anyone in my community, the, my my colleagues, my friends, all they want is for me to be happy. They're not sitting home laughing at my failure. But that's what that was the trick that my brain was telling me. And that took me, Haley, that took me, dare I say, a decade to to kind of finally, you know, it, it's one thing to comprehend it and and kind of read about it and read self-help books, but it's another thing to finally be like, okay, okay, now I kind of get it, you know, and and really I feel like it took me a decade to find find myself again and and let go of I had a bunch of anger that I was holding on to. And and you know, once I was able to finally let go of that, that's when, you know, that's when I I found more success with, you know, with with having goals of writing a book and and writing, you know, being more um, kind of intentional with songwriting and playing music. So for me, that for me, it, it was a journey of, of, you know, mental health was just getting in my way of being able to, to live in, you know, a good normal life. That being said, I had a wonderful time raising my children. You know, I have, like many of us, perhaps I have that those two worlds, I have the world that goes on in my inside my head. And then I have the outside world, right? Which exactly. Now, do you think that your childhood and the cancer and all that had anything to do with with what happened later? I don't think so, but I I, I think that's probably naive to say as well, right? I think I, I think had I not gone through cancer, I think that depression was going to come after me no matter what. I I I, I get the sense that from from my situation, it was very chemical. And I think no matter what, I would have would have had trouble living a serious life. The the truth is, Haley, I have yet to kind of grow up. So, you know, when when we did move to Germany, I stayed home with the kids and my wife went to work full time. And then she had an, we had another baby. So I even got to raise a, an infant, which is like how many men get an opportunity to raise an infant? Very few, right? Yeah, and it's still hard work. Oh, it was the but it was the greatest. So I was raising. We had the the three older kids and a and a baby, and you know I didn't speak the language, but the community, this little fifteen hundred person village, was they all knew my wife because it's a, it's one of those German villages where it feels like it's a hundred years back in time. You know, like all the same people live in their three generations in their houses and all that kind of stuff. But this community was so good to me. You know, they were, they were so supportive to an American, big American dude, bringing the kids to kindergarten and bringing the kids to, you know, doing all the stuff that men just don't do. They don't even do it in America, but they certainly don't do it often in, in Germany. So yeah, I, I did have, I've always been so lucky to have, to be supported by generally. And, and again, I say it not with not as a brag, but I am a good person. So I'm a good guy. You know, I 
I'm very social, even if I don't speak the language, I'm still social, you know? So, you know, those years in, in, um, in Germany, I, I felt like I was having just fun. I was raising my children. So to me, every day was, uh, you know, was more fun than the last, you know? Yeah. And then as they were getting older and, and it was becoming even more fun because I was such a part of their lives. That's, that's when kind of transitioning this conversation over to, to writing a book is I was so lucky to be really close with my daughters who are now 21 and 20. So I, I watched them, I watched them very, and maybe all parents do, but I really, really closely watched their growth uh, emotionally. And, and because we were so close, um, I was such a part of watching them experience this stuff and, you know, the obvious stuff, you know, their first boyfriends and all this. And so at some point when I was like in 2017, my kids would have been maybe 15, let's say, or something like that. And we were buying them. I'm, I've, I've all, all my life been a big reader and we were buying my kids for Christmas, a lot of uh, young adult books. So I remember I was reading the back of them after Christmas, they had already opened all their books, uh, their gifts. And I was reading the back of them because I read all their books too. And uh, I was like, oh man, I think I could write a, I think I could write a young adult book. I I know what my kids went through. Like, you know, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. One of those moments where I'm like, I bet you I could do that. And I'm not a writer, but one of the things that's nice in my opinion about young adult, the young adult kind of um, world, uh, as far as books is concerned, is it's not really about fine prose. It's more about a story that young young adults can kind of you know understand and and experience through through words so and i'm just curious uh, um was it hard on your wife at all that she was working and not building maybe the relationship that you were building with the kids <laughs> oh no <laughs> i know it's a tough thing it is well again i love my wife and we we've been together for 32 years and uh the way our family system works, Haley, is it is us five against my wife. It's always been that way. She's a grumpy German. <laughs> we we adore her. We love her. My kids just absolutely love her. But um, she is very serious. She has very high expectations. And uh, the way our our system worked was everywhere we everything we did, it was us five against her. So. I, I think it was probably hard on her, but that is who she is. She's, I met her when we were kids. She was always kind of serious and grumpy. She like, if you met us, you know, when people meet us, they're like, well, there's no possible way you two could be together. There's just no way, but you know, here we are. I, I didn't have a choice. I mean, the, the universe told me that that's who I was going to marry when I was 18 and I didn't have a choice and I don't look, you know, I'd never regret a minute, but right. In she, to this day, she's super close with my daughters and my, my sons, we have two and two, but it's a different relationship, right? She laid down all the, all the rules and I gave all the love, you know, that, and it worked, you know, our, and it often happens that way. Right. And it worked and it worked. And it's usually the other way around, right? It's usually the, the, when the dad gets home, then shit's then, it, then you're in trouble for us. It was, we would be running around, listening to music in our house 
And then, you know, mom's home and we'd have to shut off the music and, you know, like be serious because that's how, that's how she expected it. So. Right. Right. But it worked. Yeah. We, we, we raised, my wife was a professional volleyball player uh, when she was younger. And now my two oldest daughters are on full volleyball scholarships here in the States. And my eight-year-old son is on a full ride volleyball scholarship. Oh, pretty amazing. How weird is that? It's in the blood. Yeah. Everyone's very athletic. Wow. Yes. Well, just, you know, before we get into random round, I just wanted to ask, is there any last piece of advice you can give to our listeners that, you know, maybe they're struggling with a cancer diagnosis or or they're finished with treatment even, and, and just are trying to get back in, into life? Well, Haley, you know, you got to do the work, right? This is, you got to do the work, which, which it's, it, it is about reading self-help books or going to get, get, uh, you know, see therapy or, or any of that stuff that is part of the work, but then also just doing the work inside. Right. I mean, I am not, I am certainly not afraid to share my shortcomings and I'm definitely not afraid. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I've done a lot of work. And I still do a lot of work. I still have to make sure that, I mean, the obvious stuff that I'm, I'm sleeping. And, and so now I'm, 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 I guess I'm talking a little more about depression, but, but in the end, our emotions are all the same, right? If, if we're struggling with grief, if we're struggling with fear of, 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 you know, cancer or whatever our emotions are in the end, we, we have to do the work to get through it. And, um, you know, I'm proud that I've, that I've, been able to pull it off and um you know um, we we all you know we all see the the people my some of my greatest heroes have have made the choice to you know to take their own lives and and i get that i totally 100 percent get it i i i can see when you're in those in that place where you feel like there's nowhere to turn but uh you know that would never be a choice i'd make because i I enjoy doing the work. I actually enjoy that, you know, oddly, I enjoy that, that darkness and, and seeing the other side of uh, my weird brain. You know, I, I think there's beauty in, in seeing the side of grief and seeing the side of, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm expressing myself the way I want to, but, you know, when we're faced with those, when we're faced with challenges, you know, that's what I live for. Yeah. And that's resiliency, right? I mean, yeah. And, and I don't want status quo, man. That's status quo to me is boring. I like to, I love challenge and, and new. And, and to me, that's kind of, I, I feel like that all ties in with, you know, getting in there and, and mixing it up with your, with your brain and your emotions and your heart. And however you, we all see it differently. I, I, I see my, I often see my mind as this weird adversary, uh, you know, adversarial relationship where my mind is somehow always challenging me or trying to bring me down or something, you know, and it's like, I, I got you, I got this, you know, so. Yeah, we all have that in our heads, right? I think we all do. And some of us drink it away. Some of us, you know, there's a lot of ways to to get through those things. But in the end, um, I just want to live a good life like all of us. Right, Haley? Right, right. Well, thank you for that. And are you ready for random round? Oh, my goodness. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. 
fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Freedom to me is the opportunity to be happy. The last show you binged and loved? Ooh, I'm not much of a TV guy, but my wife and I sat through six feet under. Never watched that one. Absolutely awesome. Oh, you got to see it. It's the greatest. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Oh, my wife's not going to like this. I usually call my mom. <laughs> oh. uh, I should lie and say I call my wife. <laughs> if you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, I am absolutely 100% at this point in my life fascinated and obsessed with a, an amazing songwriter and musician, Jeff Tweedy. He's the lead singer for a, a band called Wilco. And he, I'm in Chicago right now, and he lives in Chicago. And every time I see a guy with his build and his type of hair, I'm always like, maybe that's Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> so I think I would like to spend an hour with Mr. Jeff Tweedy. What is your favorite go-to snack? Well, seeing how I work at a chocolate factory, I'm going to say chocolate. That's an easy one. <laughs> I love chocolate too. What's one simple thing that brings you joy? Sitting in alone, practicing my bass. What is on your nightstand? Never go anywhere without my Kindle. <laughs> what is your favorite form of exercise? Uh, I'm a I'm a weightlifter, so I'm a, a still at my age, still doing the bodybuilding thing. What is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? I'm grateful for my for my wife giving me my four babies. Hmm. And I will put the book and your music in the show notes. Um, is there anywhere else you would want to tell people to find you? No, no, that's, that, that's wonderful. And mostly I just, I'm so thankful that you gave me the opportunity and, uh, yeah, it's, I love talking about this stuff. It makes me feel, uh, it makes me feel good and remind me that, um, uh, that I should, I have stuff to be proud of because I can, I can forget. So it's, it's nice to talk this through, you know, that's so great. Yeah. There's no doubt. And there's no doubt that you're helping tons of people just by doing this. So thank you so much. Thank you, Haley. I appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.